The Michael Duke Show. I have two guns, one for each of you. Firearms Friday. As Thomas Jefferson stated, it is the right and duty of the people to be at all times armed. To be at all times armed. Say hello to my little friend! I say that the Second Amendment is, in order of importance, the First Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. The Michael Duke Show. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not be infringed. Firearms. From my cold, dead hands. Friday. Firearms Friday, your chance to sound off on issues of a 2A nature right here on the Michael Dukes uh, show, uh, program, uh, thingy, dealy bob. Good morning. Welcome to the program. It is Friday. Um, And again, your chance to sound off on 2A issues and to uh, hear lots of good commentary and everything else. Uh, The weekend is coming up. The big long weekend if we could just keep the power on, apparently, <laughs> that the wind from Typhoon Damre is uh, <clears throat> still slamming against the coast and the peninsula and the Aleutian chain. And there's been power outages uh, all over the place since yesterday. If I, if, I, if all of a sudden I go radio silent, you know there's a reason. Probably because we lost power. <laughs> it's 2,600 people out in the valley, another 8,000 down on... Uh, uh, in Chugach, uh, Chugach, and uh, uh, down on the peninsula, HEA and and uh, and others, uh, power going off. Every, Seventy mile an hour winds down in Anchorage, uh, with 40, 50, 60 mile an hour winds out here in the valley. It is a little bit breezy, and uh, we keep expecting things to go off. So if uh, <clears throat> again, if it just abruptly quits, there was a reason for it. So just FYI, letting you know what's happening right now. But we're going down for the weekend, and it's going to be a nice one. Uh, we're going to have a nice long week. Yesterday was beautiful. Yesterday, raining like cats and dogs in the morning, and uh, by the afternoon, it was a nice, balmy, beautiful day. So maybe we can expect more of those this weekend, question mark? Can only, can only hope. Well, today's show is a hell of a way to kick off a weekend. We have got a great show today. It's jam-packed. In just about 10 minutes or so, uh, 15 minutes, we're going to be talking with Dr. John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. And we're going to be talking with him about a variety of things, but uh, specifically we'll be talking with him about uh, his his article, uh, which we didn't get a chance to talk to last month uh, uh, about under real clear investigations about uh, selective stats. talking about the crime debate and how selective statistics leave suspicious fingerprints all over the crime debate. So we're going to talk about that with him here in just a few minutes as some of the latest things that are going on uh, around the country uh, with that. Uh, Then in hour two, we're going to pick it directly up right after Dr. Lott with J.D. Tuchilli from Reason Magazine, who's got an article out talking about the latest Pew poll. Uh, the latest poll has um, has it, it offers little comfort for gun control supporters. 
Uh, Americans support tighter laws, but not as much as they distrust the government and actually like owning guns. So we're going to talk about that with J.D. Tuchilli from Reason uh, in Hour 2, and then we're going to finish up with Willy Waffle. I mean, it is just packed. There's not much to do uh, outside of uh, talking with two of these great guests, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, forward to it today. Like I said, a great way to kick off to kick off a weekend. So buckle up, Buttercup. It's going to be a good one. Um, we also have, <clears throat> of course, some headlines from around the state. Excuse me, headlines from around the country. And uh, we'll have some discussions on everything that's going on um, uh, with guns and gun news. And, you know, I, I think that is, uh, that is some good stuff. Um, anyway, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's a happy, happy Friday morning. Happy, happy Friday. Um, yeah, it's uh, and then flooding in Fairbanks. My dad just said in the chat room, the Tanana is more than a foot over flood stage. Many roads are underwater. Um, yeah, just the rain. Man, so crazy. So crazy. All right. Um, <clears throat> well, let's hit uh, on a couple of these stories. Uh, we might actually talk with uh, we might actually talk with Dr. Lott a little bit about some of this because this has been a statistically this has been a thing going uh, back um, for quite a while on um, uh, you know with with shootings that take place out there that a lot of times that they are choosing areas that are essentially soft targets um, gun free zones right I mean that's one of the big things is. You know, people who go into uh, <clears throat> who've decided have lost their mind and decided that they want to go in and shoot up a place for fame, for infamy, for, you know, whatever insane reason they decide they want to do it. Because, I mean, the, we can't place ourselves even in those positions to kind of understand that kind of stuff. Um, but they're always looking for a soft target. And there is more uh, to that. Um than you think. And in fact, new evidence is now coming to light about the attack a few days ago in Jackson, Florida, on the uh, uh, on the Dollar General store, the white supremacist who decided he he had the he had the Nazified AR-15 or whatever, and he decided to go in and shoot up the place because of uh, black people. Apparently, that was his whole reasoning. Um, but it turns out that that was actually his third target. He had attempted to go to two other targets. Now, initially, it was reported that he had tried to get it go over to um, Edward Waters University, which is a historically black university there in Jacksonville. Um, that had already been reported. He'd refused. He was approached by an on-campus security officer. And after refusing to identify himself, he was asked to leave. Um, but then uh, it turns out that even before that, uh, before going to the university, he had, in fact, actually gone to another family dollar store and uh, ran away from there because he saw the possibility of immediate armed resistance. And this is <clears throat> we've talked about this um, again with Dr. Lott and others that, you know, there are many times that at the first sign of resistance in these mass shooting incidents, that generally speaking, there is a there is a high probability that seeing the first um, seeing the first little stab of resistance from anybody in these instances, 
the killer has been known, killers in these situations have been known to basically back off, hole up and kill themselves because that's, they, they've done their thing and, and that's, you know, so any form of resistance could, could cause them to shut down. Investigators <clears throat> are now saying that they believe that the gunman originally intended to attack a different dollar store, a family dollar that he had visited just minutes before driving to the university, according to CNN. Uh, they believe, and the, the uh, sheriff believes, that the sight of a security vehicle uh, arriving at the store and parking outside of the store deterred the shooter. You know, one of those traveling security guys who comes around and parks and it's just, you know, is a visible presence of security uh, of what's going on. Uh, the uh, water said, I don't believe uh, I don't think he wanted to have a confrontation with somebody that would create an issue for him or stop him from doing what he wanted. He had a goal in mind. I think he wanted those stores, one of those stores, and I don't know why. Um, but again, who can understand or ascertain the. Uh, the motivations of somebody who is mad, just insane, you know, crazy, um, demented. I don't know what word you want to use there that is, I don't even really care if it's offensive, but I'm just saying, you know, I don't know what, fill in the blank, all of the above kind of thing. But again, it just shows, and we've seen uh, instances of this. Dr. Lottis talked about the diaries of many gunmen talk about their plans, you know, the planning of the of the crimes. And many people mention that they're looking for someplace that is a soft target where they will not meet resistance. Um, and again, I would say if you're looking for yet another reason why, if you feel so inclined, not everybody has to do it, not everybody's built for it, but if you are so inclined that this would be another good reason to point out why you should go forth armed. Because, again, usually at the first sign of resistance, we see these, uh, you know, we see these guys either hunker down, back up, or in some cases, just back off and actually end the rampage and kill themselves because they've apparently accomplished their mission of infamy or whatever it is that they're looking for um, because reasons, you know. So uh, anyway, I thought that was a uh, <clears throat> just another little tit, you know, a little bit of insight into uh, what's going on uh, around uh, these kind of situations, and again, just another argument as to why we should always be paying attention to this kind of stuff. President Joe Biden has unveiled a new plan aimed at broadening federal regulations on the sale of used firearms. The Justice Department submitted a new blueprint yesterday um, to define more clearly who must secure a federal firearms license for legal secondary market transactions. Uh, the license mandates are, um, I mean, they're, they're getting stiffer and stiffer. The proposal represents the latest effort by the Biden administration to try and strengthen gun, uh, gun control, not by congressional law, but via administrative rules. Uh, the White House outlined that under the suggested guidelines, individuals would be expected to obtain a FFL and conduct background checks if they meet one or more of several criteria. Um, and there's a whole list of them. Uh, one of the ones uh, that I found uh, most interesting was that the White House also outlines criteria that would automatically make someone, pre or excuse me, the, the 
to make someone presumed to be or presumed to require a federal firearms license, I should say. Um, offering any number of firearms for, uh, for sale while signaling the ability to sell additional firearms. Frequently offering the sale uh, for sale firearms bought within the last 30 days. Selling firearms that are like new and in their original packaging. That's just, I mean, I have a couple of those that are like new in their original packaging that I have never gotten around to shooting. So if I wanted to sell one of those, now I would have to get an FFL because it's like new in the packaging. I mean, selling multiple firearms of the same make and model. And now they also said the administration is targeting anyone that appears to be marketing firearms for sale. Now, this includes creating a website, making business cards to advertise or market firearms. Okay, that's a legitimate business thing. I see that. Maintaining records to document and track profits and losses from firearm purchases or sales. Uh, okay, I mean, I don't know how you're going to enforce that. But here's the other one. Purchasing business insurance or renting space at a gun show. That they're targeting those. If you're renting space at a gun, if you're a private seller and you're renting space at a gun show, you're going to be on their list. That's the next, that's the next thing right here. The good news is, is that the NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation is now weighing in and uh, they're going to be, uh, they're, they're paying close attention to this. So we'll see what happens to this here in the future, but you know, <clears throat> he's got a pen and he's got a phone and he's going to try and make use of all those things, even while Hunter Biden is doing hookers and blow in the corner. I mean, it's it's the, just nuttier than squirrel poo. All right, we got to go. We're going to be back in just a minute. Dr. John Lott's going to be our guest. We're going to continue, kick things off and start talking about statistics and how they can be spun, spun statistics We're going to uh, talk about that here in just a minute. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We'll be back with more right after this. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like... America used to be streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to you. It's a beautiful, beautiful day. Um, uh, you have no chat room on Facebook, says Bill. Weird. Uh, I don't know. Everybody else is on uh, Facebook and it seems to be going on. Um, the genie said, um, it's such a trigger word to use Nazi, racist, white supremacist. The reality, reality is this was a psychotic break. I mean, yeah, it's like psychotic, psychotic. Um, anyone else having problems with the Facebook chat room says Tundra Tony over on, uh, on YouTube. It's all blank. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Um, what's another list, says Greg? I sure, I'm sure I'm on several. Oh, man. 
Um, so what you're saying is that I should just sell firearms out of the trunk of my car, Mr. Government? Yes, Anthony. That's exactly what I'm saying here. Oh, man. Okay. Greg says, Bill Brock and those folks who are on Facebook, click the live chat at the bottom of the thing, apparently. I can't see it. Um, yeah, no, the winds are just crazy right now. Absolutely crazy. Um, the winds are howling. Uh, my whole house has been kind of creaking all morning as the wind is racing around here. 70 mile an hour winds down in Anchorage, and they say gusting up to 50 or 60 here in the valley. So it's pretty much it. Uh, okay, well, we're going to be joined by Dr. Lott this morning. Um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, uh, let me see what's going on here. I'm trying to see what's happening. Uh, yeah, we're going to get to that story uh, here in a bit, uh, Brian. The, the district, D.C., Washington, D.C. Is, ha is having to pay out to gun owners in a big, big way. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be good. Uh, $5.1 million, by the way, to gun owners who've had their rights violated by D.C. after the Bruin decision. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'm waiting to see. Dr. Lott should be piling in here in just a second. There's nothing at the bottom of the screen, says Bill. It's a completely blue screen. I don't even know what to say, man. Don't even know what to say. Um, can I see the comments? I can see the comments over here. Um, yeah, I could see the comments in the chat room on the, on the, uh, on the browser. Uh, but I'm obviously not on my phone looking at that. So, okay. <laughs> Brian says it's calm out where he is because they all, we all know that God loves him the most. Um, anyone going to Burning Man? Hey, you can't talk that way on Facebook, Harold. You can't talk that way. You can talk about setting people on fire. That'll get you banned. Just saying. I made one joke about burning a car because there was a spider in it, and I got a warning. So you can't talk about burning people. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Oh, burning, man. It's an event. I get it. Um, <laughs> uh, can you see me now, says Chris. Chris, I can see you now. I can see you now. All right, uh, we're about to be joined, Dr. John Lott, Crime uh, for Crime Prevention Research Center, CrimeResearch.org. He's about to join us this morning, and we're getting ready to uh, jump on board to talk about his uh, last article. I, I've been wanting to talk to him about this for a couple weeks uh, from Real Clear Investigations, talking about selective statistics and what it does to the crime debate. And uh, he's got a really great in-depth article about this, and we're going to. Uh, we're going to chat with him about that here in just a hot second. I'll post up the uh, I'll post up the link here in the chat room, and for you guys to uh, to check it out for yourselves. I see I see he is now in the green room, and we're ready to get things connected. We're 25 seconds out, so we'll rejoin the radio and uh, bring Doctor Lot on, and we'll get things uh, we'll get things started here. We're also going to talk to Doctor Lot about a bet he threw out a bet to a bunch of academics. He put real American dollars on the table and said, I will bet you X will happen. And nobody wanted to take him up on it. That was an interesting, we're going to talk about that as well. All right, here we go. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free thinking radio. 
What the hell's an assault weapon? You know, if we could just figure out how to get all of the murder guns and the attack guns and not keep selling those to people and just sell protection guns, I think that would be great and solve a lot of problems. Does this mean that if we hurt your feelings, you'd consider the Michael Dukes show assault radio? <laughs> okay, we can live with that. Here's Michael Dukes. That's right. I only get protection guns. I only get protection guns and defensive guns, not murder guns. Dr. John Lott is the president of the Prime, uh, Crime Prevention Research Center. He is also the author of the book War on Guns, More Guns, Less Crime, and many others. Uh, he joins us this morning to talk about his latest piece. Uh, well, it's not maybe his latest, latest piece, but it's in Real Clear uh, Investigations. The title of the article uh, article is Murder, They Spun, Selective Stats Leave Suspicious Fingerprints all over the crime debate. And Dr. Lott, of course, is an academic, a statistician, and uh, somebody who kind of uh, came into the whole gun control debate with eyes wide open uh, just from a, a, a purely academic standpoint and has since over the years become an advocate for true numbers in uh, in gun reporting and everything else and, and, and has basically talked about a lot about how the bias is slipping into everything when it comes to guns. He joins us this morning uh, to discuss this and so much more. Dr. Lott, good morning, my friend. How are you? Uh, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's good to be good to have you on. Thank you so much. I've been wanting to do this for a while, especially after seeing this article, um, because again, you know, just for folks who who don't uh, who haven't listened to the program before, haven't seen our interviews before. I mean, you originally when you first started looking at gun crimes, gun control numbers, and everything else, when you wrote that first book, you know, more guns, less crime, um, you actually. You had no dog in the fight, right? I mean, you were just an academic who was looking at it from a statistical standpoint, but slowly but surely, you, you've been swayed in one direction. Can you give us a little bit of background just for folks who've never seen you or heard of you or haven't heard this story? Uh, yeah, well, sure. Uh, I mean, I was probably in the middle of the gun control debate. I didn't really have particularly strong feelings one way or the other. I'd done a lot of research on crime. I'd been chief economist at the U.S. Sentencing Commission in Washington, but it's not something that I had looked at. There were lots of other issues on crime that I uh, was more interested in. And uh, I was teaching a class at the Wharton Business School, and uh, I made the mistake of telling some stu the students that I was ahead in the syllabus. And I had a couple students come up to me after class, and they said that they knew it wasn't quite on the topic there, but if I could, uh, if I had the extra time, could I go and uh, look at gun control a bit? And I said, well, I guess I could do that. And it kind of forced me to have to go through more of the academic literature on gun control. And I have to say, uh, it was incredibly poorly done. Very small studies, you know, picking like 31 counties from across the United States. I don't know how you pick 31 out counties out of 3,140 counties. Um, and when you're an academic, you do a paper for one of two reasons. Either one, you have a new idea, which is like 95% of the papers that I did, or because you simply think you can do a better job, and uh, which was this case. And uh, I have to confess, there was about six times while I was working through that original paper that I got bored and almost stopped doing it. Uh, but I ended up finishing it, and um, 
I got a call from a reporter named Dennis Kushan at USA Today, who I'd gotten to know when I was chief economist at the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And he would call me up every six months or eight months and ask me some questions. And so he called me up and asked me his questions. And at the end of the discussion, he says, oh, by the way, what are you working on? And I told him. And uh, he said, well, that sounds interesting. Why don't I send him a copy of it? So I did. And then about a week later, it was on the front page of USA Today. And we were kind of off to the races after that. Yeah, no, it was uh, you made quite a splash in the market. And since then, from someone who really had no dog in the fight, no interest in it, you have come to become uh, you've become a voice for um, really for accuracy and reporting and an advocate for. Um, you know, I guess an advocate for guns and the fact that there is a, a, I guess, a movement out there to spin it. And this article kind of touches on that because you talk about in this article, you know, all the gun violence statistics, all the headlines that we're reading and all these other kind of things that they're not necessarily truthful. I mean, they don't hold true to the, you're a numbers guy, you're a statistician. They do not hold true to the numbers or they're being spun in a certain way. So walk us through this article and uh, some of the things that you're talking about here. Yeah. Well, just one comment first before I get into that, and that is I'm not a gun advocate. I'm a safety advocate. What got me into this debate and what keeps me involved in it is simply trying to figure out what makes people safer. And one reason why I've kind of stayed in this debate is, is that I've been involved in a lot of academic debates, but on the gun control issue, I don't think I've ever seen so much misinformation uh, as I you see consistently from the media and from government and others uh, on the gun issue. Uh, I just had a piece yesterday at Real Clear Politics uh, that people can find on our website at crimeresearch.org that goes through and, and talks about uh, misleading crime data from the FBI, for example. But look, uh, you know, the piece that you're talking about, uh, which is a little bit older, um, one of the claims that's been made a lot this year is that Republican states have higher murder rates than uh, Democratic states. And uh, they go and they look at the data for 2020. It's basically a claim that uh, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom originally made. Uh, at the beginning of the year. And there have been lots of fact checkers and others who say, yeah, no, he's completely right on this. There are a couple problems with it. One is, it's true for the year 2020, uh, the murder rate is higher in Republican states than Democratic states. But if they had looked one more year and this data was out for 2021 when the claims were being made, the reverse is true. The murder rate's actually higher in Democrat states than Republican states. And you would think when people were doing the fact checks, somebody must have at least looked to see what the most recent data was since it was out at the time when uh, Newsom was making his claim. In fact, it was out months before uh, Newsom was making his claim. But there's a more important objection, I think, and that is uh, law enforcement uh, dealing with crime is overwhelming a local issue. Uh, decisions about policing are made locally. Uh, it's you know not just the budget for police, but uh, the police procedures are made locally. Uh, uh, you have district attorneys are virtually always elected locally. 
Uh, judges are virtually always elected locally across the country. Uh, so uh, the decisions of who to prosecute and the decisions of what penalties to impose on people are, are all uh, local decisions that are being made there. And so, uh, you know, while at the state level, you'll have uh, kind of what the possible prison term range can be, but that's usually pretty large. Uh, you know, they could say one to five years or something. Uh, whether you arrest somebody, whether you charge them, whether you uh, convict them, and, and whether what penalty you impose are all local uh, issues that are there. And so I would go and argue uh, it's overwhelmingly a local issue. And if you look at county data, uh, what happens is, is that even in 2020, the entire high rate of murders in Republican states are driven by the few large uh, Democratic counties in those states. The, um, the Republican counties in those states have very low murder rates. Uh, and, and the reason why the, uh, the Republican states have higher murder rates is that the Democratic counties in those states are just have extremely high murder rates in those years. So I'll give you a couple examples. You have um, uh, Louisiana uh, is a very Republican state, uh, and the murder rate as a whole in the state is high. Uh, but the reason why it's high is because you have uh, Orleans Parish uh, has a murder rate of about 50 per 100,000. Uh, you take Missouri. Uh, Missouri, I think, has a murder rate of about 15 per 100,000. Uh, but the reason why that's up there is that you have a couple places, uh, mainly St. Louis and uh, Kansas City areas, uh, which have very high um, murder rates. Uh, in St. Louis, the murder rate, again, is about 50 per 100,000. And so that goes and drives up the rate for the state as a whole, because you not only have a lot of people living there, but you have uh, the extremely high murder rates that are there. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, this is, again, a story of more and more, uh, you know, what we see more and more, which is selective use of the facts where they use the one fact without diving down into it. Oh, the red state has the problem, but they're not saying that the whole reason that the red state has the problem is the skewed numbers coming out of the blue segment of the red state kind of thing. And and we see that time and time and time again. Um, Patton said, uh, G George Patton said, decision making is easy once you have all the facts. But you point out in this article that we can't even get all the facts. Uh, you mentioned specifically that police agencies who are reporting on this stuff, and you're talking about this, I think, also in your news story about the FBI data. 7,000 police agencies account uh, uh, for about 35% of the U.S. population, and they didn't even report crime data to the FBI. I mean, we've got a reporting issue, so we can't even get all the stats and statistics that you need to use. So whatever we're seeing is really kind of an incomplete picture of what's going on. Well, uh, that problem really started in 2021. Uh, uh, the data that was reported, it was reported in 2022, but it was data for 2021. That's where you begin to see uh, all these places like Los Angeles and New York are two uh, places that didn't report uh, their crime data to uh, to the FBI. So you can see, uh, and there are lots 
of other jurisdictions in California, for example, in New York uh, and other places, usually fairly heavy Democratic areas uh, that uh, stopped reporting their crime data for 2021 and, and 2022 to the FBI. So, you know, you're right. It's uh, a lot of the crime data we've had over the last couple of years has been problematic. And I think probably underestimated the increase that we've seen in, uh, in violent crime over the last couple of years. I mean, this really uh, this really hurts um, the overall discussion about this kind of stuff, because the you say the generalizations shape a lot of the public debate that's going on. All these numbers and data feed into the public debate. But when we don't have much of the information, it's frustrating. And then on top of that, gun anti-gun organizations, gun control groups, they have a, tend a tendency to generalize. We're always seeing when it comes to uh, death rates by firearms, they lump that in with gun violence. Something like 65 to 70 percent of those gun violence deaths are actually suicides. So it skews the numbers even more. So we can't have an honest conversation about that. Right. Yeah, but if you add murders, suicides, and accidental deaths together uh, for guns, you find that uh, suicides make up about 70% of uh, that total. Look, I mean, uh, and we see this lots of times, uh, you know, the, the type of claim is, is that guns are the leading cause of death for children or something. Um, there are many issues with that. I mean, just purely as a number one, if you uh, look at for under 18, uh, so minors, uh, in fact, uh, what you find is that uh, motor vehicle deaths are higher. Uh, and for 2019 and 2020, uh, suffocation deaths are higher. If you add homicides, uh, accidental deaths, and suicides together. If you look at murders, uh, in fact, suffocations are higher even for 2021, all the last year that we have. Uh, that type of data for. And so, um, you know, so that's one basic problem. But the other basic problem is, uh, and I think this is kind of what you're getting at with the suicide discussion, uh, but it's broader than that. And that is, the, the impression is, is if we could just get rid of guns, then we'll save all these lives. Uh, the problem is, is that we've banned uh, guns in different parts of the country. Chicago and Washington, D.C., firearm suicides fell, but total suicides didn't fall. And you see that in other places around the world. Uh, countries that have banned either all guns or all handguns may have seen uh, firearm suicides falling, but total suicides don't change. And so the basic the point is that, uh, uh, you know, it seems to me we care about total deaths, not whether deaths involve uh, just firearms. And if people merely change how they commit suicide, and so you have the same total number of suicides, it doesn't seem like uh, that's really uh, much of a gain that you've gotten there, if anything. Right. And then you also have the issue of murders. The implication is, well, if we just get rid of the guns, then these murders won't occur. Uh, well, we've tried getting rid of guns. We've tried banning guns in uh, in places like uh, Chicago and Washington, D.C., as I say. Uh, and what happened to murders? Murders went up 
in fact, every place in the world that you've seen either a ban on all guns or all handguns has seen an increase in total murders. And so, uh, you know, if anything. Uh, we just lost the audio for a second here, uh, but that's an appropriate time to take a break. Uh, Dr. John Lott is our guest, the Crime Prevention Research Center. We're going to find him at crimeresearch.org. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh well, we're going to talk about the news media's part in all this because of the reporting and some of the things. Dr. Lott has had some things to say in the past about how the news media covers and reports this kind of stuff. And we're also going to talk a little bit about his bet. I just had to chuckle at this. This is, for, this is, this is some older news, but I had only seen the story just a couple of days ago. Uh, Dr. John Lott asked some academics to uh, put their money where their mouth is. And nobody really wanted to do it. So we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Dr. John Lott, our guest, The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. Okay, uh, Dr. John Lott is our guest. Uh, Crime Prevention Research Center, crimeresearch.org. If you want to uh, uh, put it out there. Um Dr. Lott is working on his uh, working on his phone right now and his audio, trying to get things squared away. Um, I can hear I can hear him now, so uh, we'll get him back on here in just a second. Uh, yeah, I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay, I lost your I lost your video there, so I can hear your audio, but I can't see your video. So you've turned your camera off, I think. Uh, there, there we go. There we go. Um, okay, um, Randy asked an interesting question. Um, and this is this is actually interesting for a couple reasons. Randy asked the question, what are some of the biggest Republican controlled cities and what is the murder rate in those cities? Although he he calls it M rate. He says Facebook doesn't allow me to fully spell out the word murder, uh, which <laughs> I mean, wow, that's a that's that's a there's a there's a little piece for your uh, for your uh uh, your censorship right there, but uh, you're talking specifically about the Democratic cities holding sway and, and causing the bell curve to go way up. Um, are there Republican-controlled cities? Do they overall do they have a lower rate, or what? What is your what's your your uh, data show? Yeah, I mean, if you go to our website, I mean, it's an older piece, so I don't have it memorized because it's a couple months ago. But uh, if you go to our website. Uh, we have some discussion about that. Uh, you know, Fort Worth is a Republican city, controlled uh, city. You have some other ones that are there uh, uh, that are large, um, and they have relatively low uh, murder and violent crime rates. But if you go to crimeresearch.org, and this is a piece that I had for Real Clear Investigations, uh, you'll see we break it down by counties that are over 100,000 in population to make comparisons as well as just all counties. 
Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You had one little piece in the uh, um, in the in this latest piece from or the the piece that I'm talking about, which is back from July in Real Clear Investigations. You say breaking out large counties with over a hundred thousand people, which is where eighty eight percent of the murders in the United States occur. So it's in these large, larger, you know, these larger counties of 100,000 or more where the majority of this stuff takes place, which is just, I mean, it, it kind of, it, it kind of speaks to the whole thing of if, I guess you're safer in the rural area than you are any place where there's 100,000 people or more. Well, um, you know, if you look at it, uh, the 2% of the counties in the United States account for about 56% of the murders. They account for about... 23% of the population, uh, but 56% of the murders. Uh, if you look at the top uh, 5% of the worst counties, so the top 2% of the worst counties, it's about 60 counties. Uh, the uh, uh, the 5% uh, worse is going to be about 120 uh, and counties or so. And uh, what you find is they make up about 75% of the murders. Uh, so murders in the United States are concentrated in a relatively small number of counties. But even more than that, uh, even within those counties, it's very heavily concentrated in tiny areas. Um, in the 2% of the worst counties, uh, almost two-thirds of their murders take place within 10-block areas within those counties. Uh, so it's, it's very heavily concentrated. Uh, I mean, again, and that's the statistics that you're not hearing uh, from the mainstream media or from some of the talking heads that are talking about how gun control is going to save us all and and uh, and that kind of stuff. And that comes back to what we're going to jump back into when we get back, which is the coverage and the media's uh, uh, component of this, what they're doing. Uh, you've had some pretty harsh words for them, so we're going to get to that uh, here in just a second. What are you working on? Can you give us a brief description of this latest article? I haven't had a chance to read it. It came out yesterday. I didn't see it. Uh, the FBI, is it, it? does it kind of correlate with what's going on here, the active shooter incidents? I don't know what you mean by correlate there, but look, um, the the issue there is just whether they're accurately putting the data out. And unfortunately, um, I think there's, I mean, people have had a lot of discussions about the political biases at the uh, FBI and the Department of Justice. And unfortunately, it's not just in terms of who they arrest or prosecute uh, or spy on. Uh, it's also in terms of uh, the crime data that they put out. And there's some real problems there. Uh, if you look at the nine years from 2014 to 2019, the FBI claims that uh, uh, of 302 active shooting cases, only 14 of those were stopped by uh, law-abiding citizens legally carrying or making field handguns. And uh, so that's about 4.6% of the total. Um, uh, people don't need to take my word for it. We've gone through and collected these cases. Uh, they're on our website at crimeresearch.org. Uh, but what we've indicate that uh, they're actually about 150 of these cases. All right. Doc, um, hold on. Hold on, Dr. Lott. Hold on. We're about to rejoin. Let's get to it. The Michael Duke Show.
All right, we're back now, continuing our discussion with Dr. John Lott, author of the book of War on Guns, More Guns, Less Crime. He's the president of the Crime Prevention Research uh, Center. You can find them at crimeresearch.org. He's always got some great pieces up there, lots of great data that you can peruse through on their website. Uh, again, a statistician uh, looking at the issue of guns and gun violence and gun crime across the country. Um, right before we went to break, uh, we were just talking about, uh, you know, Dr. Lott has had some strong words for the media in the past, specifically in how they frame arguments or how they place things. Um, and uh, I know a couple times, uh, I think it's probably the second or third time ago when we had him on the program, he specifically was uh, was was talking about how this is feeding into that. Uh, problem of uh, the perception, I guess, the perception problem with people uh, and guns. Dr. Lott, are you still, you know, are, does the news media play a big part in that? What is your what is your main concern with the way the reporting is going for these various crimes and what's being reported in the media with gun violence and the statistics and numbers that we're seeing? Well, the media has a lot of impacts on people's perceptions about the benefits and costs of guns. Um, they do it in terms of uh, how they cover defensive gun uses versus gun crimes. Uh, so, for example, um, you know, we did a deep dive uh, a couple years ago uh, looking at all the news stories across the country in terms of defensive gun uses. If you look at the five largest newspapers, for example, uh, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, uh, New York Times, uh, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, you'll find that they had about over 2,700 news stories about gun crimes. Uh, by contrast, they had only 10 stories about defensive gun uses, and most of their stories had something uh, go wrong. Um, you know, the problem is, is that uh, in reality, uh, you, we find that uh, people use guns defensively about five times more frequently to stop crime than used to commit crime, but if you know you just rely on what's in the newspapers and stuff, uh, you think people almost never use guns to stop crime, and when they do, something goes wrong, and yet there's lots of gun crime that occurs. And uh, the problem is, uh, you know, partly it's just an issue of what's newsworthy doesn't necessarily reflect reality. So, about 95% of the time. Uh, simply brandishing a gun is sufficient to cause a criminal to stop an attack. And so if you have a situation where, let's say, a woman brandishes a gun, the would-be criminal runs away, no shots fired, no dead body on the ground, you're not even sure what crime uh, was committed versus another news story where you have a dead body on the ground. Uh, I think you or I or anybody who is an editor of a newspaper or, or a news outlet at the time would think that the second story, the dead body on the grounds, is a lot more newsworthy than the case where the woman used the gun defensively and you're not even sure what crime would have been committed. Uh, you know, we care about both from a policy perspective, but in terms of what's newsworthy, we can understand why 95% of the news stories just aren't considered uh, newsworthy and don't get covered. Um, and then you also have other issues such as the fact that uh, uh, people only report about 22% uh, of violent crimes to the police uh, and the media doesn't even cover all of those. 
And so, uh, and the police don't record systematically things like defensive gun uses. So it's not too surprising that, uh, you know, what gets covered by the news media is just really a fraction of, uh, of what happens in terms of crime or in terms of uh, uh, defensive gun uses that are there. Yeah. Uh, but there are lots of other problems that occur with the media, and I've been writing about that. Uh, recently, too, on our website at crimeresearch.org. And that has to do with uh, how the media covers things like uh, uh, these mass public shooting diaries and manifestos that are left. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, every town, Michael Bloomberg's, one of my, Michael Bloomberg's many gun control groups, um, has, uh, has had a lawsuit uh, dealing with the Buffalo mass murder from last year. Uh, they're suing the gun store, the small gun store in New York that sold him the gun, uh, even though they properly did the background check on him. Uh, they're suing his parents uh, for being responsible. Uh, they're suing social media for supposedly radicalizing him with right-wing propaganda. Um, you know, the problem is, is that... Uh, not only every town, but the news media generally uh, doesn't seem to want to carefully read this murderer's manifesto. Because um, if they did, uh, one thing that they would realize is that what's responsible is the gun-free zone. This guy spends a lot of time explaining why he picked the target that he did. And his number one uh, explanation for it is he wanted to go to a place where he knew his victims weren't going to be able to go and defend themselves. He wanted to get right. media. Uh, and he knows that the more people he kills, the more media attention he's going to get. And he knows if he goes to a place where his victims aren't able to go and defend themselves, he's going to get even more uh, media attention. Right. Uh, but, you know, every town and the media generally uh, refuse to talk about that. Uh, the media coverage... Uh, of every town's lawsuit, for example, uh, and talking about the parents. One of the things that they uh, ignore there is that this murderer had actually seen two psychiatrists prior to doing his attack. And, uh, and both those psychiatrists had said that the person wasn't a danger to himself or others. So if two mental health care experts are supposed to, you know, say he's okay, why Why are you suing the parents who's not even living with at the time Right. Uh, for, for that? But, you know, I suppose another thing that really gets to the media bias uh, is uh, talking about uh, this guy's motivations. Yes, he was a racist. Yes, he was a white, white supremacist. But if you read the editorials in the New York Times or the Washington Post, and the New York Times has probably had like, eight editorials in the last year about this guy because he's been exhibit A for them showing, you know, the dangers of right-wing white supremacists. They classified him as a right-winger. They classify anybody who's a racist as a conservative and a right-winger. Uh, the problem is, uh, if you actually read the guy's manifesto over and over again, uh, he explains why he's a white supremacist. Uh, he calls himself an eco-fascist. He calls himself a socialist. He calls himself uh, somebody who is a mild-mannered authoritarian leftist. Right. Um, 
maybe maybe you have a lot of conservative friends who call themselves authoritarian leftists. Uh, maybe you have a lot of conservative friends who call themselves socialists or whatever, but it's kind of not the people that I know. About. Yeah, exactly. It's the but, same thing. Dr. John Lott, uh, our guest. We're running out of time, Dr. Lott. CrimeResearch.org. I'm going to ask the doctor to hang with us for just a minute to talk about the bet. If you want to hear about that, you'll have to listen on the podcast because it's going to take place over the top of the hour. we got more coming up. Reason Magazine's J.D. Tuchilli in Hour 2, plus Willie Waffle, The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Back with more after this. I just don't know how they can get away with that, Dr. Lott, where it's very clear in his manifesto, he says he's an eco, eco-fascist, he says he's a leftist, and yet they continue to just lump it in like, oh, because he's racist, he's right wing. There are racists of every stripe out there, and it just blows my mind. And onto the onto the gun-free zone thing, you're talking about the Buffalo. It just came out yesterday or day before that this Jacksonville shooting that just took place, that that dollar store that that guy got to was the third location. He turned away from two other locations because he was confronted by armed security at one point. Yeah, we have that on our website. Yeah. We put that up the day that it occurred. Yeah. yeah no, I know. And in and, and the North Carolina case, uh, it was also a gun-free zone that he had tried to attack. This, the, but in Florida, the historically black college that his first target was, uh, you know, he uh, – he, he that it was also a place where civilians were banned from being able to go and have guns. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's not mentioned uh, much in the news media is that in North Carolina, the uh, the murderer there um, was uh, um, was a, a non-immigrant uh, alien. He was uh, here on a student visa. And uh, unless under certain exceptional circumstances, which I don't think he fulfilled, uh, he was banned from having either guns or ammunition. Uh, and yet he obtained a gun. Uh, in Florida, uh, there are conflicting news stories, but some of the news stories say uh, that he had been involuntarily committed to a mental hospital. Uh, and if so, he would have been banned from having guns then too. And so, you know, here you have. Uh, two attacks that got a lot of attention that had targeted gun-free zones and uh, uh, where civilians were banned from having guns, where at least one and maybe both of these individuals, it was illegal for them to have guns to begin with. And yet, you know, uh, you had these attacks. Right. Uh, that I, I want to before we run out of time, I want to talk about this bet really quick uh, because I, I just I was laughing so hard. You actually made a bet. You put out an email to 12 different academics challenging them on the issues resulting in Brazil because Belisaro in Brazil had had uh, lightened the gun laws there. People there had been a 600 percent increase in gun ownership. And then the new authoritarian president had come in and you'd made a bet with 12 different academics as to which way the uh, gun uh, violence, the homicide rate was going to go. You said a thousand dollars if it uh, if it goes up to you, uh, to them. And yet when it all turned out, nobody wanted to take you up on this. And in fact, they wanted to waffle on it. I thought this was, is, has anybody ever responded? This The article I read was a couple months old. So has anybody taken you up on your offer of that $1,000 bet on which way gun control was going to go? 
nobody took me up on my bet. Uh, I had uh, reached out to a 13th academic, uh, and he never responded. Uh, most of those guys, I think like eight of the 13 never responded despite multiple uh, requests uh, there. Uh, one guy did say he would do a bet, but it was like completely different and uh, it was a mess. And he wouldn't explain why he wanted to make any of the changes and what I'd offer. But everybody else either refused to respond or, uh, uh, or respond and said no, that they weren't interested in doing it. And, you know, the amazing thing is these guys have no problems going to the media constantly and uh, and making predictions about what's going to happen with different types of gun control laws. Here you had a very bold, you know, stark changes, the 600% increase in gun ownership, and then a ban on gun sales, a ban on ammunition, a ban on concealed carry, uh, and, and moves towards dramatically changing the licensing rules to take away the licenses from many people who had it, uh, guns. And, uh, you know, it's you don't usually find that type of dramatic swings in such a short period of time here. Uh, and I thought it was kind of a perfect uh, time for a bet. I mean, some of these academics would be claiming that each 1% increase in gun ownership uh, would be associated with a 0.6% increase in homicides. Well, that's a pretty bold prediction. You have a over 600% increase in gun ownership. There should have been a 360% or more increase in homicides. And yet uh, the, the homicide rate fell by 34% under Bolsonaro. Um, and you know this ban on guns and taking away uh, gun sales and taking away existing guns, uh, you would think uh, uh, these guys would be willing to put some money where their mouths are on, right. uh, on these predictions. And I wanted to do it in a way that would memorialize it so that they would be held accountable because too often afterwards people come up with rationalizations for why things didn't work out the way they thought they would. Yeah. Dr. John Lott is our guest, the Crime Prevention Research Center. If you'd like to donate and help Dr. Lott with his work, you can go to crimeresearch.org slash donate. He doesn't take any money from the NRA or GOA or any of the other organizations. It's simple people like us who are helping fund his uh, his research and his policies and his writings. Dr. Lott, as always, my friend, it's great to talk with you. Thank you so much for being part of it today. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks very much. Take care, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I see JD Tuchili is in the green room right now. We're going to just pop over there real quick and uh, see if we can get him to uh, uh, see if we can make sure the mic works and everything else. Good morning, my friend. How are you? Can you hear me, JD? Doing well, and you? I'm doing good. A little bit of a delay there. Okay, so uh, I'm doing... I can. Can okay. you hear me? Yep, I can. I'm doing real good. We got a bit of a delay, so I'm going to take that into account. Uh, we're about to jump back onto the radio, uh, JD. So I'm going to pull you back into the green room, and we're going to try this uh, here in just a second, folks. Please like and share, like and follow, do all the things on YouTube and Facebook and all that stuff. We're going to continue the Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Hour two, dead ahead with JD to Chile. Let's. Uh, I'm I'm excited. I can't wait. Here we go.
buddy, put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. The Michael Duke Show. I have two guns, one for each of you. Firearms Friday. As Thomas Jefferson stated, it is the right and duty of the people to be at all times armed. To be at all times armed. Say hello to my little friend! I say that the Second Amendment is, in order of importance, the First Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. The Michael Duke Show. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not be infringed. Firearms. From my cold, dead hands. Friday. There's my rifle, there's my gun, this is for fighting, it's for fun. Firearms Friday. Firearms Friday, your chance to sound off in issues of a two-way nature right here on the Michael Duke Show. Uh, big Labor Day weekend coming up. Excited to see a little bit of a break. I hope you uh, are ready to face it today. Uh, already had a, band, a jam-packed show this morning. We just finished up with Dr. John Lott from the Crime Research, uh, Crime Prevention Research Center. Uh, some good pieces. If you missed that, you can go back and watch it on the replay on YouTube or Facebook or listen to it on the podcast. Uh, but right now, we're going to jump into it with our friend J.D. Tuchili who is a contributing editor for Reason Magazine. He comes on board to talk with us this morning about his latest piece in Reason, which uh, talks about the Pew Research Poll. Pew has been doing a lot of polling over the years. Uh, This latest one, though, may not offer a lot of comfort to uh, gun control advocates because while the Americans do in general support tighter laws, they don't support it as much as they distrust the government and actually like owning firearms, which I'm, hey, I'm in that group right there. J.D. Tuchili, our guest this morning. A uh, little bit of a delay, but we'll get him right now. Good morning, J.D. How are you, my friend? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Well, as always, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you. You're the, yeah, I, I, a little behind the scenes stuff. I'm always last minute Charlie with J.D. I'm like in the afternoon before the show. Hey, can you come on tomorrow? You know, I never give him much of a heads up. He's always very good about coming on and talking with us, and I appreciate that. Um, J.D., you know, we've seen polling data. We always hear it. The gun control people always spin it. Well, the vast majority of Americans support new forms of gun control, and it must be so right. I mean, of course, making policy by poll is always great. Right. You know, that's always a great way to do it. But the numbers don't always say what they say they say, uh, I guess I see. Now, while most Americans do support in general, especially it depends on how you word the question, uh, they do support, you know, stricter laws. But when you explain to them a lot of time what that law means, like, for example, you know, every there must be universal background checks. Everybody's got to check a gun. But then the late question later goes on to say, you want to loan your gun to your best friend to go hunting. That would not be allowed under the law. Do you still support it? And they say, well, wait, no. I mean, he's my best friend. I need to loan him a gun or, I, you know, it, it's this. The, the the what the question is is always important but you found some interesting stuff in this new pew uh uh poll so uh break it down for us absolutely um this poll uh, by pew and pew does a lot of polling on a lot of issues and, and firearms is one of the big ones they uh they revisit frequently um the the first question they asked was do you think it is uh, too easy 
uh, too hard or just right, about right, to get uh, guns legally in the United States. And 61% uh, of respondents said it's too easy to legally acquire a firearm in the United States. And that's the answer most uh, anti-gunners would lead with. But Pew, and I give him a lot of credit, uh, didn't headline the study with that, and that's not where they stopped asking asking questions. Because what they also found was that um, gun owners uh, feel safer uh, when they're about owning a firearm. They're happy to own a firearm, um, and uh, yeah, and the owning of a firearm makes them feel that they're protecting their family and themselves. They also found, and this was really interesting, is that while about a third of respondents said they were gun owners, um, and 50, only about half of the non-gun owners said they would never consider owning a firearm. Almost half, 47% said, yeah, I could see myself getting a gun someday and joining the ranks of gun owners. Um, and that is a big deal. It means that uh, people might in the abstract think that it's too easy to legally acquire a firearm, but they might want to get one themselves, including half of those who don't currently own a firearm. And it shakes things up. It means that there's not some kind of a huge anti-gun consensus, as certain politicians would like to tell us, among Americans, not by any means at all. No, it's it's interesting because again, and we found this out, especially during COVID, uh, that there was that whole you know thing that went around where Obama said, you know, it's easier to get a library book than it is to get a gun, and all of a sudden you had this plethora, eight million new gun owners, with a huge, a significant majority of them being uh, first time minorities, more progressive individuals, and things like that, and all of a sudden they discovered. It wasn't that easy to get a gun. It wasn't. It was harder than they they thought. Oh, I could just go down and check one out from the library. It'll be fine, you know, kind of thing. And they discovered that was not the case. And so this again is some of the problem with polling because you have a perception of how hard it is and everything else. But again, still there is a there's a demand or potential demand with almost half of the people saying that they would own a firearm. Uh, they could see themselves owning a firearm in the future. So I mean, again, there's the, the problems with this kind of polling stuff. There's, there are huge problems with this, and and the COVID area surge in firearm sales actually uh, points out one of the big problems of this is that if you believe that um, a firearm makes you feel safer, I mean that makes it makes you safer, and you feel safer in owning a firearm, then you're going to be suspicious of any institution that makes you feel unsafe, that you distrust. And separate polling finds that Americans overwhelmingly distrust the government itself. They consider it a direct threat to their liberty in some polling. They consider it um, uh, an immediate uh, problem for the United States. They, they just distrust it overall. So that, and of course, it's the government that imposes and then enforces gun control laws. So if the government makes you feel unsafe and you purchase a firearm because you want to feel safer, having the government impose tighter restrictions on you is a no-go in a lot of ways. The problem gets even worse when you look at the fact that this is a democracy. Elections occur and power changes hands on a regular basis. And both of the major parties at roughly 80% levels consider the other major party and its supporters to be direct threats to the country. So you distrust the government and you absolutely despise the people who intermittently, as elections you know, come and go, are going to gain control of that government. That's a higher level of fear and distrust of what the government might do um, you know, with its power, with its vast power. Again, another reason not to surrender your firearm and trust the state. COVID um, also brought with it a surge in crimes. Now, fortunately, violent crime, homicide seems to be down this year, as are most property crimes, except for auto theft, which is still way up. 
Uh, but that violent crime surge, first of all, it erodes trust in the ability of the state to protect us. So therefore, you want a gun. You uh, distrust the government. You consider it incompetent now. It cannot suppress crime. In fact, it promotes policies that may, in fact, that may make our cities and towns unsafe for us. So there's more reason e than ever for us to own a gun. And if we go to another polling, which I think we discussed a few weeks ago, there's reason to believe that a lot of those no supposed non-gun owners are, in fact, gun owners anyway. Um, a study came out of New Jersey where they found that a lot of people saying they don't own firearms in their um, sampling across the board fit the profile actually of gun owners better than they fit non-gun owners <laughs> and the researchers came to the conclusion that a lot of the people up to almost half of those who said they don't own a gun probably do and did not want to admit that gasp so, gasp <laughs> the, <laughs> so the support out there the basis for taking an anti-gun position as a politician is not very strong at all. There's yeah. an abstract belief in mouthing the, the statement that, yeah, it's too easy to get a gun legally, but also a large desire to acquire one, a real likelihood that many of those who say they don't own a gun actually do, and a real distrust of those who would enforce restrictive laws if given the ability. Yeah, no, and I, I found it fascinating that this, it, it, that poll, I love that whole thing about, my God, they're actually lying to us about their gun ownership. How could that be? That's so wrong. They shouldn't do that. Because, of course, you know, again, go back to the, see our, our previous discussion about the distrust of government. Yeah, we don't trust government-funded institutions that are doing polls. I, I'm shocked, shocked to say that. Um, but one of the more interesting things that came out of this most recent poll was not only did they distrust the government, but also the amount of people who simply felt safer owning a gun. Now, we've talked on this program before about how a gun is not some kind of mystical totem. It's not a laser shield that protects you from all. It's not like you buy a gun, you put it in your purse, and you go, well, now I'm safe. Now I can't be hurt. But uh, people do feel that way. There is some comfort uh, in that, in knowing that you have it uh, as long as you're trained. Let, let me put that out there. You got to get trained. You got to get what you need to know. But even people who aren't, they do feel safer. That's a, It was a pretty, pretty staggering number when you looked at it. It absolutely is. I mean, it was 72% of respondents say they feel safer, which is comparable to the 74% of respondents that in earlier polls have said that owning a firearm or the, at least the ability to own one, they consider to be essential to their freedom. I mean, that's a political commitment, whereas feeling safer is a personal commitment. It's about this makes my life better and makes me better able to protect myself and my family. And, and the reason for it is true. You're right. It's it's not. I mean, OK, some people see a totemic uh, power in having a firearm, but there's a practical ability that in a relative sense, if you know what you're doing, it can make you safer. I walked my my dog before dawn this morning. I do though it almost every day. Um, we have mountain lion and bear um, up in the hills or near my house. And so I bring a gun with me and a flashlight. Um, it's just a good idea because I see critters out there all the time. Does it act as a shield against mountain lions? No. But do mountain lions on occasion eat people in Arizona? Yes, they do. So it makes me feel a little safer to have that gun with me. And that's the same thing with a lot of people. They want to feel like they're in a position to defend themselves and their families and that they're doing them and that by implication, they would be doing their families a disservice if they didn't do something that would make them safer. And, and the government that would then impose or restrict them 
they don't trust and they feel that it itself is dangerous to them. Absolutely. Um, for let's let's reel back to one of my first comments was making policy by poll is madness. Yeah. Uh, but yet politicians continue to tout things like this all the time. I mean, again, just going back to our previous discussion a few weeks ago about how the 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 researchers were just stymied that these people would absolutely lie to them. How can we make how can we make public policy if you lie to it? Well, it's because you shouldn't be making public policy based on a small sample data of 330 million people when you're only you know you're polling a thousand or fifteen hundred or five thousand people out of 330 million. But this seems to be what they want to do. It's 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 populism writ large, right? I mean, this is what they're looking at right now, but there's major problems with it. Well, of course there are. I mean, let's allow that polling can be helpful in terms of giving us an idea of what's going on in the world around us, but it's not definitive. And yes, people lie to pollsters all the time on sensitive issues. Uh, if a stranger comes to the door and asks you about things that might be legally or politically or culturally fraught, and you don't, you've never met this person before and you don't necessarily know what they're going to do with the information, why would you surrender sensitive details on you that, that might cause uh, tensions with your neighbor or legal problems with the government? You won't. And so, of course, people lie to the government all the time. And firearms ownership is one of those things that is both legally and culturally fraught in our country. So people, especially if they're new gun owners, they live in an urban area where gun ownership might be frowned upon and restricted by the state. Um, I could definitely see why they might be prone to lie to the government. But then making policy. I mean, first of all, let's, a lot of us believe that rights are core. And that uh, even if 90% of the uh, population said, yeah, you shouldn't be able to criticize fearless leader, we'd recognize that we retain the right to criticize fearless leader anyway, or to own the means of self-defense, a firearm, because these are core individual rights that should not be subject to popular opinion. But even if they are, even if we say, okay, everything is majoritarian, polling is an imperfect way of capturing sentiment because sentiment rises and falls People do lie to pollsters. So we have to recognize it's a useful but imperfect tool for measuring what's going on in the world around us. And politicians who want to uh, you know, weaponize polling and, and to either determine what they should be um, advocating as policy or merely to hammer other people with it and say, and say look, everyone agrees with me, um, are using a, a really a flimsy platform uh, for achieving what they're trying to achieve. Polling is not useful in that sense. Well, it's politically useful, but it's it's not a good use of polling to, to use it that way. J.D. Tuchilli is our guest, contributing editor to Reason Magazine. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk with him about compliance. Uh, he mentions this in the article. And we're also going to talk about politics, uh, especially upcoming elections and things like that in regards to this. J.D. Tuchilli, our guest, The Michael Duke Show. It is Firearms Friday. Back with more right after this. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these uh, entities to provide streaming stuff going on, on, the, on the Internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. J.D. Tuchilli, our guest here uh, on the Michael Duke Show, who's sitting outside in sunny, sunny Arizona. I just, I, I get jealous every time I see you out there on the front porch just doing your thing. I got to be honest. It's been raining cats and dogs and blowing seventy miles an hour winds here, right here. We're getting the, we're getting the tail end of the Damray typhoon, and uh, 
It, just not been a great summer, JD. Ship me some of that weather, man. I don't need the 110 stuff, but <laughs> ship me. I'd siphon off 10 or 15 degrees, and we could both be happy, right? Maybe we could meet in the middle. We'll just kind of split that temperature differential. Yeah, exactly. You could have 90, and I could have 75. That would be really a nice, a nice, a nice way to go. Um, yeah, this whole polling thing, uh, I get, I, I really get tired of it. We were just talking with Dr. Lott about how the news media loves to spin a lot of this stuff, you know, give certain statistics. He was talking specifically about how Gavin Newsom was saying, oh, there's more murders in Republican states than there are in Democratic states. And Dr. Lott's like, yeah, until you drill down and figure out that it's the blue dot in the middle of the red state where all the murders are occurring and it's skewing all the data. And then you really, but this is, this is how they play us because we're, we're we're busy. We're living our lives. We're we're paying the mortgage. We're making sure we're taking the kids to soccer. We're doing all these other things. We're not down into the nitty gritty and the and the and the finite details of all this stuff. And yet these people could pull stuff up and go, well, it's the truth, but it's is it really the truth kind of thing? And that's how they get us. It, it is. I mean, it, a lot of it is how you use the data, or more often misuse the data, because I mean. Ideally, you're using it like a scientist. You want to extract truth from it. But if you're political, you're really trying to win policy by wielding it like a bludgeon. And uh, that's what I was talking about when I mentioned the misuse of polling before. I mean, you can use polling that way. It might achieve your goals, but it's a misuse of the data because then you're not extracting truth from it. You're just trying to win. You're trying to win a goal. Right. Well, and again, you're not looking out for the best interests of the people because you'd want the truth if that was the case. Instead, you're looking out for consolidation of your own power, which, I mean, how many politicians out there are sociopaths just for that reason? I mean, that's all they're in there for is for the personal power and things like that. Uh, what else is J.D. working on these days? I mean, I, I, you're, I mean, you're prolific, my friend. My God, you write more than I talk. It's pretty crazy. But you've got a lot of things that you've been working on. A gun stuff, of course, obviously, some of my favorite. Uh, but uh, just give me a tease for folks out there. Your piece out today talking about social media. Uh, this is a divergence from firearms, but I think it's important because we hear all these politicians that want to save us from ourselves or save our children from us because we're not good enough parents to track our children. But now you've got this piece out talking about how they're cloaking the save the children. They're cloaking uh, these privacy attacks on that. Give me a quick tease on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a series of bills, a couple of them in Congress, and one is worth uh, is worse than the other. And in the name of saving the children, they want to uh, impose age verification on the Internet and also government run um, identification systems that would basically assign us all an ID number um, or an identification that would track our activities and our presence across the Internet in the name of making sure we're old enough to access social media and look at the various websites we're looking at. But that would mean the death of privacy, the death of anonymity. Never again would you be able to just post something saying that such and such congressman is a jerk without the government knowing that you were the one who said that congressman was a jerk. And that's incredibly dangerous, but it's being done in the name of the children. That's why nothing then, uh, then you know, nothing makes me angrier than the use of the children to justify authoritarian legislation. And this is just a classic case of that. Especially when the data and the research is still so vague on any kind of correlation or connectivity between social media and children's behavior. I mean, there's been some uh, kind of ancillary data, but nothing that's rock solid. But they act like it's, you know, the word given from on high on stone tablets or something that social media is is bad for all children kind of thing. And yet the, the data doesn't that out and they're this is again never let a crisis go to waste they're going to make legislation about it 
Oh, absolutely. And, and and let's be clear, even if the data said that having your kid on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok was a bad idea, it's up to parents to decide, not the government. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, J.D. Tuchilli, you should go out and read that article over on Reason. It's uh, titled Protecting Kids on Social Media Act Cloaks Attack on Privacy Behind Concern for Children. It's an interesting article and you should go read it. Right now, it's out this morning. Uh, all right, JD Tuchilli, our guest, The Michael Duke Show. Here we go. I'm going to replay this because it's my favorite. Back with more. Here we go. No. Now we're going to do it. There we go. What the hell is an assault weapon? You know, if we could just figure out how to get all of the murder guns and the attack guns and not keep selling those to people and just sell protection guns, I think that would be great and solve a lot of problems. Does this mean that if we hurt your feelings, you'd consider The Michael Dukes Show Assault Radio? (laughs) Okay, we can live with that. Here's Michael Dukes. J.D. Tuchilli is our guest. I know for a fact that he only owns protection guns. Not, In fact, I don't even know if he owns... I know he had a canoe accident here recently, so he may not have any guns anymore. But when he did, they were protection guns, not murder guns, not attack guns. So, uh, Welcome back to the program. J.D. Tuchilli, contributing editor for Reason Magazine, our guest. We're talking about his article uh, about the latest Pew Research polls offering little comfort for supporters of gun control, showing some very, very interesting things. In the end of the article, J.D., you start talking about, again, pulling all these diff- separate things together, you know, distrust of government, wanting to feel safe, you know, all these things. And then we get down to the issue of compliance. Now, you and I have talked about this several times before, but I think it... It just continually bears repeating. You've got states like Connecticut and New York who have passed these egregious assault weapons bans uh, after certain events have happened or whatever else. But what you're seeing is more and more Americans doing the most American of thing, and that is civil disobedience. Uh, Compliance in, for example, the New York SAFE Act has been in the single digits Meaning 90 plus percent, in fact, the number I saw was like 95 and a half percent or something of gun of assault rifle, quote unquote, owners basically have refused to comply. Uh, And we're seeing that across the country where people are just like, nope, I'm not. Because, again, it goes back to that distrust of government and the numbers are proving it out, right? Oh, this is exactly right. And that, and that's where all this leads, is that when you're talking about, in the abstract, restrictive laws imposed on people who don't trust the government officials who are going to restrict them, they're less inclined than ever to, to uh, submit to them. And when, when New York State imposed their, you know, under the SAFE Act, an assault weapons registration, and let's leave aside for the moment that assault weapon is a silly you know, term of art and that it means whatever politicians intend it to mean. But assault weapons registration law, uh, compliance with it was about 4.5%. It was under 5%. Uh, that, what that law included also was a requirement that you were to re-register every five years. As of last year, only about 60% of those who originally registered had re-registered. So that meant that compliance declined after the law was imposed and is now somewhere down around two and a half to three percent. So over time, the implicit promise of policy is that you're going to change the world because people are going to obey your restrictive laws. If they don't, if you impose prohibition and people instead 
turn into moonshiners and bootleggers. If you ban marijuana and people instead grow their own and develop new strains, um, or if you impose gun registration laws and they don't register their guns, you don't make the reshape the world in your image. You actually nudge it in an unpredictable direction one of non-compliance, distrust and defiance of the state, and um, an open confrontation between government enforcers and the people themselves. And that's where you end up when you, when you try to jam laws down the throats of the unwilling. And that's across the board. It doesn't matter what area of life it is, but of course it applies to firearms too, because there's so much at stake in this politically and in terms of personal, uh, you know, personal lives, when people look at firearms as a means of making themselves safer from those they distrust, and those they do distrust include the government itself. Right. Well, these same politicians that are just demanding and wanting and, and just, you know, they want that control. They are in instead, they're forcing us more towards the Irish democracy model, right? I mean, the whole yeah. wildness, the complete and total disregard for law. And they're actually pushing it closer every time they do something like that. They're actually pushing it closer to anarchy than anything else because people will lose all respect for the law. And that is the danger that politicians just don't see. Um, and and they continue to push these things and people continue to resist. And I think, again, seeing that number of the majority of people, the distrust of government, th that's not going to slow down. That's going to increase. The harder they squeeze, the more is going to slip out between their fingers. That's what's going to happen here. And, and I think um, and I think that's you know, we can see it, but for some reason they're so close to it, they can't see it. And so their answer is to just squeeze harder. And that leads to my next question about polit uh, politics and politicians and the election campaign, because we're seeing now that many of these politicians are now doubling down on what are really losing propositions, I think, from what I've seen, from the statistics, from what's going on. But I want your take on it, because many politicians, Gavin Newsom included, he's probably the most egregious one right now with his uh, his constitutional convention to outlaw, to put a new amendment on, to outlaw assault. Now, it's never going to happen, but it's a stance that he's taking. You're seeing the Biden administration doing everything they can through administrative code, and more and more politicians are trying to use the gun issue as if it's a winning issue. But historically, that's been a loser. And if you look at all the data you just threw out there, I don't know how you couldn't see that it was a loser. Politicians who build their campaigns and their political identity on authoritarian and restrictionist platforms end up making the world a worse place. Newsom is doing this by implicitly uh, proposing to partially repeal the Second Amendment, which is what his proposals involve. The Biden administration is pushing forward with basically gun control by executive order. We're seeing their attacks on 80 percent receivers. You have people on the right doing this with age verification for pornography and social media. Um, I mean, the same idea. When you build your political identity around trying to make the world a less free place, you're creating grounds for confrontation with those who disagree with you and who refuse to obey. So, of course, you're going to end up with um, a non-compliant society, large percentage of the population who disagrees with you will not obey your new laws, even if you um, ever get around to applying them. And you erode the foundations of the government that you that you hope to uh, to head in the future. Gavin Newsom, as a president, if he ever got a chance to impose his policies, would end up at war with half the country. And, and, and honestly, it could literally be at war with half the country if you pushed hard enough. They, that's not going to make the world Place. It's certainly not going to free your place, and it's going to create more confrontation between the likes of the, of the politicians and between the people they want to impose their policies on. Because Americans will only be pushed so far.
right? I mean, that's really the bottom line. That's right. And 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 even and Americans of all stripes. I mean, one of the most interesting things about the noncompliance of the Safe Act was that the year after it went in, and they were talking about how this compliance was not happening, there was a commentary. I wish I could find it again, but basically. They brought one of the state troopers from New York into the legislature to say, you need to go out and you need to. Th-. And he's like, no, you go door to door. You want to go door to door and knock on people's doors and take their guns? You can do that kind of thing. I mean, it was just it was like one of those shocking moments where like, whoa, wait a second. The politicians from their place on high are edicting that, oh, you must do this. And the people who are actually you know, supposed to be enforcing this are like, I'm not walking up to somebody's door and pounding on their door and demanding the, the you know, arresting them and taking their guns. Are you insane? And and that's the disconnect there. It is that whole thing. But this is where we're at today. And nobody is really saying much about that. They're not saying much about that. And of course, the politicians don't have skin in the game. And uh, and the pro- if there was a law that said if you that if you impose new restrictions on people, you have to be the one who enforces it personally, the world might be a better place. We certainly would have fewer restrictions because once you put their skin in the game, uh, they're going to be less willing to get to become completely authoritarian with us. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, J.D., we got about two minutes here, so I kind of want to wrap up final thoughts on this. The whole polling issue, the lying to pollsters. I mean, this we've, we've gone far afield here, but let's wrap this back to what we you know, if if. JD was king for a day. How how would we fix this? How would we bring this back in line with what reality is? Well, the reality is that restrictions and prohibitions across the board, and I don't care what the issue is, whether it's drugs or sex or guns, um, are very, very hard to the point of impossible to enforce. And if that we recognize that in and of itself, no matter what we think of the of the object or the social concern that we're focusing on, we think of that as, as a rock solid fact. I think we have much better policy coming out of that, is that no matter what people say in the abstract about how they think the world ought to be slightly different, uh, they're not going to comply. The world is going to be worse off if you try to impose restrictions on us. And uh, we just need to back off and recognize that you have to let people do things you don't want to do yourself. Otherwise, you're going to create new problems. And again, the shocking thing is, especially when people act in uh, complete opposite of what the polling and everything else is expecting, the whole COVID gun purchasing thing was probably one of those aha moments where people are like, wait, you mean blacks and my, you know, minorities and women and, and Democrats actually want to buy guns? That makes that makes I wow. I mean, they were shocked, shocked, I tell you. And, and even those people who were purchasing were shocked by the lies that they were told. And uh, maybe they got a little bit of a truth bomb on there. I don't know. J.D. Tuchilli, our guest, Reason Magazine. You can find him at Reason.com. Go out and read his stuff. It's always good. You can subscribe to his newsletter called The Rattler. And you can find that there on his his page as well at Reason.com. J.D. Tuchilli, thanks so much for coming on board. Appreciate it. Hold the line for just a second. Folks, we are out of time. Willie Waffles up next with the Weekend Movies. Back with more after this. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. J.D. Tuchilli, our guest. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, brother, it, when I look at this and I see all these polls and I and I see how a poll is so confusing because the headline reads, most Americans want more gun control. Then the second one reads, most Americans are afraid of the government. And the third one reads, most Americans feel safer owning firearms. And, you know, it's it's such a 
it's such a jumble. It's such a this whole dichotomy of of conflicting thing. And and how does anybody make any sense out of any of it when it's all said and done? I mean, it, honestly, if you're not a social scientist, you're looking for data and you're just looking for information. But without context, without listing the trade-offs involved in every policy, you don't get good answers for you know what kind of policy in the abstract where do you favor? Because if you ask people in the abstract, they all want to mold the world into rainbows and unicorns. But if you say everything involves trade-offs and here are the trade-offs, you're going to get a very different answer. But that's right. a much harder poll to conduct. Yeah. No, well, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole poll of do you support, uh, you know, do you support universal background checks? Well, yes, of course. Well, do you know that you couldn't loan your gun to your brother to go out hunting or couldn't give a gun to somebody at the range to try out because that's a transfer? And we, well, wait a second. Wait a second. When you get the full truth, when you get the full information, when you look at the and this is the problem with laws, right? The unintended consequences of the laws yep. that you're not thinking about uh, when. When, when politicians are just urged to do something when something happens, nobody thinks about the long-term downstream consequences. This is what we get. We we have to have that kind of data, and it has to be explained to people. The problem is these are complex issues, and most people have got you know a 148-character Twitter-based attention span, and so they're not getting the whole story. Uh, when it's explained to them later, they're shocked, shocked, I tell you, that that's what it actually did. Well, yeah. If you tell people if you want to have universal background checks, you have to have registration because that's the only way to enforce it. You get a very different answer than if you ask the abstract, just kind of vague question. And a real poll about policy would have to involve a conversation about each question in the poll. None of them yeah. do that. Yeah. So you just get these little snapshots. Yeah. No. If you had a if you had a real true poll, it would probably be. 50 or 100 questions and a long written part and a conversation to explain all the ins and outs and intricacies. And nobody got time for that, but they're happy to just pull that one little that. Oh, look at that. They support it. Oh, no, they don't. And they, you know, it's it's crazy. That's why we cannot and should not make policy by poll because it makes no sense to do so. Um, and that's why more freedom is always better than less freedom because, you know, what some people like, some people don't. As long as you're not hurting anybody else or taking their stuff, thumbs up. That's what that's what we should be going for, right? Hundred percent agree with you everywhere, everywhere there. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, quick, uh, quick uh, tease. What are we working on now? You just put out the piece today. Uh, you working over the weekend? You got stuff coming out next week? Give us a give us a heads medical up. surveillance. That's what I'm writing about for Monday. Is how remote medicine allows doctors to keep an eye on our condition and make sure that our heart isn't about to stop, but it can also allow uh, the medical system to to uh, see what drugs we're putting in our bodies or whether we're exercising. It can turn creepy really, really quickly, and we're almost there. The surveillance society continues. I mean, you've got the personal experience with this. I know you had your heart problem and yep. stuff, so you've been watching that. That's probably a little near and dear to your to your heart right now. So, Entirely too near and dear. <laughs> Entirely too. Well, I hope you're doing well, my friend. As always, it's good to yes. see you. And uh, I mean, I just appreciate all the hard work you do. I just, I can't, every day I see your name in my email when it comes to the Rattler and I'm like, hmm, what's he writing today? I got to see it. So it's good stuff. I recommend that everybody who's listening go over and subscribe to the Rattler right now. JD's always got something good to say. Thank you, my friend. It's good to see you. Have a happy uh, holiday weekend and uh, maybe another four or five weeks. We'll bring you back on.
Sounds like a plan. You take care. Thanks, my friend. I appreciate it. JD Tuchili, Reason Magazine. One of my favorite guests. I just, I get such a kick out of him. Um, I'm a lucky man. I'm a lucky man to be able to hook up with all these great guests and uh, folks from around the, uh, around the country. All right. Um, let me get caught up in the chat room. I have been so busy with guests today that I really haven't gotten a chance to catch up with the uh, uh, chat room. So let's see. The problem with polling, says LD. Oh, my God, that's a book. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. The problem with polling is lack of education, misinformation, or sheep mentality. People believe skewed data or their ignorance inclines them to go along with leftist embellishment statistics or talking points. I believe that's why gun... Uh, that's why I believe that's why polls show unfavorable to you on guns and gun owners. From what I've seen as a former gun store owner and a firearms instructor is that we have seen a huge surge in those who lean left buying more guns and signing up for gun training, which should give us hope, I'm assuming is what he says here. But that cuts off at the end. I can't see the last word. So that's there you go. Um, all right. Let me change that around. We're going to be talking to Willie here in just about uh, oh, it's it's ringing. It's ringing. We're 30 seconds out. Um, um, so I don't know what Teresa is saying here. She's got a bunch of asterisks and stuff like there. Uh, support local. Buy a new gun. I consider it risk management, says, says uh, Rick. Uh, all right. Good stuff. Thanks so much, folks, uh, for uh, for sticking around. We're about to jump into it with Willie Waffle, wafflemovies.com. Like it, share. Like it, follow. Do all the youtube things and everything else. Let's get to it. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Movie time! Hi there, ho there, hey there. Welcome back to the final segment of the program this morning. It's the weekend. Labor Day weekend, man. It just doesn't get much better than that. Unless, of course, I had taken today off, in which case you wouldn't be hearing this. And, I mean, it's a whole thing. It's like that time-space conundrum, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing where we don't want to create, you know, time, time, what's well, not prolapses. I can't even remember what the word is. Never mind. Forget I said anything. Willie Waffle, WaffleMovies.com, joins us this morning. Hello, my friend. What is happening today? What is happening yeah. is that Taylor Swift has finally found a way to have a successful movie that will be number one in the theaters. Because <laughs> that was her next... I remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, or a month, couple months ago, where she's like, her goal is she wants to get into movies now. I mean, she's dominated the music world, why not? But everything she's done has been kind of like... But now, yeah, she's trying to move into directing, you know, because, right. you know, the acting thing hasn't quite worked out. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So she's got a plan. What's the plan? The plan is the Taylor Swift Eras Tour concert film is invading theaters in October. Yes, on October 13th, because 13 is Taylor's lucky number. Oh, geez. They will be premiering. The two-hour and 45-minute concert tour movie. It will play Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays from October 13th until November 5th. Ticket will be $19.89 for adults. That's Taylor's birth year. And for kids, <laughs> the price will be, oh, God, 
thirteen dollars and thirteen cents. <laughs> thirteen thirteen. Because thirteen is her lucky number. Man, she's got okay. some. She's got some power to be able to say that's the stuff I want right there. That's crazy. Yep. That's right. And AMC and, and Regal and every one of them said, yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. Because this thing, okay, I, 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 you know, so this was announced like this morning, not, not this morning, pardon me, yesterday morning, okay? And I got the announcement and I went, oh, let me see what the, how tickets are going. First of all, the AMC app crashed. <laughs> oh, my God. And what, by the time I saw what tickets were available, every show was almost sold out. Like the only seats left were like the 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 uh, the accommodation seats, uh, which you know I'd be kind of a jerk to buy one of those because they're not really meant for me. And so I just was like, yeah, this thing's gonna be number one for like a number of weeks. Matter of fact. The the the, stu- the movie studios picked up on this really fast. On October thirteenth, we were supposed to have a release of another Exorcist movie, and they moved it. They're opening up a week earlier because they know they don't have oh, what yeah. it takes to take down the power of Taylor Swift. Uh, you cannot exercise the power of Taylor Swift out of the movie theater. Man, it's going to be crazy. I mean, she has had such. This has been such a huge this tour, like the. I mean, one of the biggest tours in world yeah. history, right? Oh, Made more massive. money than any tour in world history. And now, Historic. quite possibly, she could have the biggest opening day of any movie. I mean, if they've sold out already, I just can't yeah. even imagine what it's going to. And, of course, this is for all the folks that didn't get a chance to go see the show. Or maybe they did and they want to go back and re-see oh, it. But, no. I mean, yeah. Oh, no. They did. They're going to go They're gonna go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times maybe. Wow. That's because crazy. I, it's shocking. You know, it, it, you know, I, I honestly think that tickets are going to go to this like they used to go like back in the day to the Star Wars movies where people would go six times because they just wanted to relive it. That's what's going to happen with this. People are going to go multiple times. They are going to have repeat viewings. They're going to have sing-alongs in the theater. It's going to be insane. All right. Well, we'll have to see what happens. Oh my God. Uh, she might break. She's broken the internet. She might break the movie theaters, I guess. We'll see what happens. All right. Um, speaking of big movies, Sound of Freedom, um, it uh, did so well. There's talk of a sequel. In fact, there might be a talk of dueling sequel. I don't know what's going on here. This is wild. You know, this goes back to the old, the old Hollywood adage. Failure is an orphan. Success has many fathers and mothers. And uh, so with all the success of Sound of Freedom, right, it, it's it's one of the biggest grossing movies uh, uh, in North America this year. It actually exceeded in North America. It exceeded Mission Impossible and Indiana Jones when it comes to ticket sales. Well, that, of course, raises the question, when are we going to get a sequel? Right. And that's where things get a little ugly. So. One of the producers, Mike Illich Jr., he claims that he secured the life rights to all stories related to Tim Ballard, the the, the featured hero in uh, in Sound of Freedom, and uh, you know he wants to do a sequel and a scripted series, a docu series that kind of like features all of his various different rescues. Like he's got big plans. Right, right. But hold, but hold the phone, baby. Hold, hold on. Whoa, stop. The director, Alejandro Monteverdi, claims he secured the life rights to Tim Ballard's stories when he was writing the original script back in 2015. 
well, he's going to put out a series and, and, and another sequel and all those things. And, uh, this, this is, this is going to be either a really ugly Hollywood fight or these guys are going to get smart and they're going to make a deal and they're going to get in it together and they're going to cash it together. <laughs> I don't understand this because supposedly, I mean, when the, he had the original script, but when the new thing got bought out by the, doesn't that all come with it or what's the deal? Well, the, the, that was the thing because this was such a small, inconsequential movie to studios. You know, they just were like, yeah, you know, it's like this little movie and then, you know, maybe we'll sell it to the Christian market and it won't be that big of a deal. They did not, like you said, typically they would secure all the rights to the sequels first. That was not done in this case. So, you know, unlike, say, an Indiana Jones movie where they, there's, a, there's a right to re-up and have another sequel, that's not the case here. So now it comes down to who has the rights to tell the stories. And, you know, did Tim Ballard, did, did he sell it to both of them? It, is one of them misinterpreting what they bought? I mean, I think there's a lot to be discussed here. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Now, I, I think the smart the smart move is everybody just team up and do it. There's enough money to yeah. go around. Well, they just know, they we, teamed, we we, they teamed yeah. up to do the first one. It's the producer and director of the first movie. Why not just team up again yeah. and do it, right? I mean, it just makes exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes makes complete sense. Because, you know, let's face it, the director needs to direct and write. The producer knows how to produce. The producer, I think, has some really great ideas for, you know, expanding this thing. It's almost like a Marvel movie now where we're going to have three and four and five different products coming from this movie. I think it's, it's a really smart idea. I think they could all do very, very well. And, and frankly, I think you got to strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. I think if they wait two or three or four years or they get they get wrapped up in legal uh, mumbo jumbo for three or four years they, they've missed their opportunity yeah no i got you on that all right well we'll see what happens there uh come on down bob yeah bob barker uh you know about i i thought he was already dead um anyway oh no i just i was like <laughs> really he's still alive i had no idea uh anyway cbs has got a special tribute yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, with Bob Barker passing uh, over the weekend at 99, uh, CBS says, yes, they have a one-hour tribute to Bob Barker. Now, it aired last night, but they're going to re-air it on Monday uh, for anybody who didn't get a chance to see it. And it will also air on Paramount Plus, their their streaming service. And it's hosted by Drew Carey. And it just it just features all sorts of clips from The Price is Right and the stories about Bob Barker. It's actually very, very, very entertaining. Uh, you know, it's just it's a wonderful just walk down memory lane, seeing some of the funniest moments from The Price is Right. Uh, hearing about Bob Barker talking about how he got in, you know, went from radio into television and how lucky he was to to really have two massively successful, uh, you know, game shows. Right. And, and you know, what what he did with his life, uh, you know, the movie, uh, the movie with Adam Sandler, you know, they get into a lot of stuff. And it's it's just it's fun. And, and you know, it's it's a wonderful kind of tribute to Bob Barker. And, uh, you know, if you missed it last night, go for it. Check it out on Monday. It's, it's, it's very, very good. Or just watch it on Paramount Plus. Yeah. You know, while, while Paramount Plus is still alive. Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> ow. Okay. Yeah. I'm just saying they're struggling. Yeah, they are struggling, <laughs> which is too bad because they've got some great programming on Paramount right now. Yeah. It's, it's too bad. They do. Um, all right. Uh, let's see how much time we got. Let's uh, let's move over to the movies. Uh, the, this has got to be, to me, one of the greatest titles I've ever read for a movie. You are so not invited to my bat mitzvah. I'm just like, what? <laughs> right. That's the title of the movie? That's the title of the movie. Adam Sandler on Netflix. 
That's right. This is now the highest rated movie in Adam Sandler's uh, you know, collection on Netflix. And why is that? Because Adam Sandler's not in it very much. So this is this is Adam oh, Sandler. How? I, I'm just I'm just saying this is Adam Sandler very I'm being very, very smart and understanding his changing role in the movies and, and, and the roles and the characters he should play. And he is graduating now. He is now the father in a family movie. And it really is more focused in on, on the teenage daughter. Believe it or not, Adam's child, Sonny Sandler, is an actress. And uh, she plays Stacy Friedman in the Netflix movie. She's very, very excited. She's turning 13. She wants to throw the kind of bat mitzvah that would make a Kardashian jealous. Uh, her and her friend have been planning this for years, but... In typical teen movie, uh, teen movie uh, parlance, there's tragedy, there's drama, there's falling out with friends, there's double crosses, there's love with a little boy. <laughs> that didn't come out right. There's love with a young man who's their age, <laughs> and, and uh, maybe age. there's some competition going on. Age appropriate. I was young just going to say, age appropriate love was going on. All right, uh, and. Uh, we have to wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> so I guess the first question is: Is it funny? I mean, is this this is a, a Adam is. Sandler type comedy? Does it does it rank up there? Yeah, it ranks up there. I mean, you listen. I'm bringing okay. So this actually premiered last week on Netflix, but with nothing else happening this weekend, and this movie right now being like the number one thing on Netflix, I thought let's. Let's talk about it because yeah. it is an entertaining movie. Uh, Sonny Sandler is actually somewhat of an engaging young actress. And, uh, you know, she becomes a heroine that you like and, and a heroine that you respect and that you understand. And you feel bad when she makes the stupid decisions that her character makes in this movie. Right. And you feel bad for the pain that she causes herself and the things that unintentionally happen to her. And and you really start to appreciate, um, you know, what they put together here, kind of this modern family movie uh, the, the Adam Sandler just you know kind of interjects himself once in a while as the dad and then takes himself out of the way because it's not his story. Yeah. I'm at two and a half waffles. I think it's oh. fun. Uh, the Adam Sandler movie that I haven't watched, and I know we talked about it, but remind me, Adam Sandler, it was actually a serious role where he was a jewel he was a jewel uh broker. Yes, yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Um that, yes, that, that yes. was that was um, somebody said that was like one of his best movies. I've never seen it. Somebody, absolutely. So and he said here he was being serious and it was a fantastic movie. So <laughs> is he through with kind of the main character comedies where he's playing a twelve year old boy over and over again, or is this something new? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I think you've seen that, you know, between that movie, uh, between the kind of the murder mystery movies that he's been doing with Jennifer Aniston. Uh, now you see this family movie here. I mean, you, you're, you're, you know, I think Adam Sandler's being smart. He knows that he can't play the same characters he played 30 years ago. Yeah. And and so, you know, he's, he's finding more mature material, more interesting material. And, you know, he's a producer now. He, he's a guy who's going to make a ton of money because you know what? He's got his name on this thing, and he makes the deals happen, and he makes the development happen, and he's got that sweet deal with Netflix where they're like, please give us your movies. And and I remember when he first made this deal with Netflix, and everybody laughed, and they said, oh, it's a sign that Adam Sandler is washed up in Hollywood. He can't even get his movies into the theaters. 
And all he did was prove that he was the guy with the best foresight, yeah. the guy who was the most yep. forward thinking, the guy who knew this is a great place to be and I could be successful and I can make money and everybody else now is copying him. Two and a half waffles. You are so not invited to my bat mitzvah. All right. On Netflix right now. Uh, finally, we got about just under two minutes. The Equalizer 3. Oh, yes. Denzel is going to kick some booty. And that's what, that's all you know. That's all you need to know, right? I mean, there's a story. Okay. So the story, the, the official story is that Denzel's character, who we know is the equalizer, is kind of living over in Italy. And, you know, he he's kind of retired over there. He's trying to get away from all the meanness and the violence and the battles that he's had to wage. And, oh, he likes all the neighborhood people. And he's just, you know, acclimating himself into this little Italian town. And then he finds out the mafia is squeezing all of his new friends. Oh, geez. And he's not going to stand for it. Not going to take it anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the idea of the Equalizer franchise, and I'm thinking the old one. I haven't seen any of these. Are they all pretty good? Are they all pretty decent flicks? They're okay. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the one of the big differences between the, the series and the movies, I think the movies are much more action and violence oriented. I mean, this is a brutally violent movie. I mean, you know, Denzel Washington is a killing machine. And and in the series, um, that equalizer used more of his wits and his right, brains right, yeah. and, and was, was out was really yeah. out thinking a lot of people. Uh so I think there's a big difference there. Well I can't uh, you know I, I but, can't I can't wait to watch it. I'm sorry Willie, but we're out of time. Negative no, cool. negative one to four waffles, where are we at? Yeah, I'm at like two and a half. I think it's entertaining okay, enough. Let's good. just have some fun. We'll see you next week, folks. We're out of time. We hope you enjoy the weekend. Enjoy yourselves. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Sorry, my friend, I'm a slave to the clock, and I had to do I it. Understand. So, so Yeah, because, I mean, I remember the old Equalizer, and I can't remember the guy's name, who it was, but he was always, yep. you know, like you said, it was always, it was his wits. He always tricked them. It wasn't like he was giving them the beat down. And, or occasionally, you know, he'd have to pistol whip somebody or something, but for the most part, it was always, he fooled them. He, he did this, he did that. Um, but from what I saw of the trailers, and again, I haven't seen any of these movies, I guess I should sit down and watch them. I really liked it. Denzel Washington. But, uh, you know, every time I look at these movies, I'm just like, ooh, there's a lot of blood flying around here. What's going on? Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's violent. There's a, you know, Denzel is a killing machine in these movies. And, uh, you know, don't go for, if you have a weak stomach. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> uh, but, you know, hey, I, you know, hey, I like watching Denzel with his righteous indignation. I love to see Denzel getting even for the for the underdog. I like to see Denzel kicking booty A because I just like Denzel Washington. And B, I'm getting to that age where I like to see somebody who's a little closer to my age still able to kick some booty. Yeah, no, exactly. That's why I watch John Wick. I mean, Keanu Reeves and I are almost the same age. That's why I watch John right. Wick. Um, let, me, let me throw this out there because we were just talking about this last week, so a friend of mine and I. Mm -hmm. uh, best Denzel Washington movie in my opinion one of the best man on fire oh yeah and and that was kind of the precursor to the equalizer movie yeah yeah, yeah. that was yeah. so good yep. little dakota fanning and and every oh man so good makes me want to just have a movie marathon this weekend man on fire followed by all three equalizers i'm all down with that so okay my friend well what's next week what do we got coming anything good well 
we've got the nun too. Ooh, I just watched. Yeah, and I just watched <laughs> the nun this weekend with Terry. I hadn't oh, seen did it yet. You really? And I was oh, like, God. I was like, oh, that was good. Oh, that was spooky. That was <laughs> well, good. You got more common, and well, and then we got another sequel too. My big fat Greek wedding three. <laughs> Because one wasn't enough, I had to get divorced and remarried over and over and over. Again. No. <laughs> well, no, no. The, no, the second one was more of a yeah. Was, now the third one is they're not. It's not even a wedding involved. If I if I'm reading this correctly, that you know it's a family trip to Greece that they've all dreamed of taking, and uh, in in honor of their patriarch who is no longer with us. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that was a pretty good movie. The first one was good. I haven't seen the second one, but you know. Again, <clears throat> repeats, repeats. Just give yeah, me exactly. something. Give me exactly. something new, baby. Give me something new. All right. Well, Willie, we'll talk about it next week. Thank you, my friend. It's good to see you. We will uh, hope you have a great Labor Day weekend. You get a day off. Hopefully, you you got my permission. I'll give you a doctor's note if you need it. Go put your feet up somewhere. Um, I'm sleeping in, man. I'm gonna yeah. just sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep. I got it. I got it. All right, my friends. Truly, we are out of time. We will see you on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. terrestrial radio skin and now we are slimy lizard internet people it's the michael duke show